there were a ton of these stories that I had never heard of. And I consider myself pretty well versed in intelligence history. I mean, I've got a PhD in it, so you would hope so. And so I kind of tracked these stories and realized that I hadn't heard about them because they'd never happened. And there were enough of them that I started getting interested in, like how many possible programs, operations, technologies that were planned and then canceled at the very last minute. This is Cold War Conversations. If you're new here, you've come to the right place to listen to first-hand Cold War history accounts. Do make sure you follow us in your podcast app or join our emailing list at coldwarconversations.com. We talk with Vince Houghton, curator of the International Spy Museum, who has just written a new book called Nuking the Moon and Other Intelligence Schemes and Military Plots Left on the Drawing Board. If you'd like to send us a few quid to help me run the podcast, click on the support the podcast menu option at coldwarconversations.com. Thank you so much to our latest supporters. Leaving reviews on iTunes also helps us, so thanks to our latest reviewers, Cheese's Word 101, Martini Glass Bob, Zach1998, GM0WDD, Valent Carmen, Trilby Hat, Skip 1969 PT in Montreal and GDR Objectified. So back to today's episode. Do listen to the end as we talk Cold War espionage while Vince answers my quick fire questions. We welcome Vince Houghton to our Cold War conversation. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into writing this book? Sure. The book itself came from a lot of research into actually another book that unfortunately is coming out this year also later on. I didn't plan it this way. Um, doing research into a scholastic book focused on U.S. nuclear intelligence. And what I found was that there were a ton of these stories that I had never heard of. And I consider myself pretty well versed in intelligence history. I mean, I've got a PhD in it, so you would hope so. Um but I would run into things where I'm like, I don't remember this happening. And God knows if this had happened, I probably would have heard about it. And so I kind of tracked these stories and realized that I hadn't heard about them because they'd never happened. And there were enough of them that I started getting interested in, like how many possible programs, operations, technologies that were planned and then canceled at the very last minute, not because they failed. This is not about failed operations or failed technologies. It's about things that just never got a chance to fail. They never got a chance to succeed either. They were, for whatever reason, canceled. I, I use the term left on the drawing board. In some cases, that was because the war ended. Some cases, because the atomic bomb worked. Or some cases, they were just superseded by events. And so it really kind of piqued my interest of, well, how many of these can there possibly be? And it turns out there's a lot. Um, more than it even ends up in the book, right? The book was whittled down... Um, you know, strategically based on like what made the most sense to put inside of it. But there are just stories after story after story left, in my case, left on my drawing board that could have been included in this book. Also. Wow. Sounds like you might have to do a nuking the moon too. Yeah, no, I think, you know, if everyone, like I hope they do, goes out and buys this book, then I, I don't have an excuse not to. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a 20 chapter book and uh, there's some intriguing operational names in here which we'll uh, get on to in in a moment i mean i'm i'm interested to know how you managed to do the research to get the information on this was it all freedom of information requests 
So no, what I wanted to do is to make sure that anyone who read this could go back behind and go dig deep in this information if they wanted to. So I, I made a purposeful decision to not do things that you could only do at the archives. I didn't, I, you know, one thing to do an academic book where you kind of expect some professor or some grad student to follow you into the archives and sure, that's fine. This book is really for everybody. And I know everybody is not going to go spend a week in a national archive. So I wanted to find ways that if people wanted to know more about this information, that they could easily access it through a library, through Amazon, through the internet. Unfortunately, a lot of people have done some amazing work in taking primary source documents, so real documents that have just been declassified, and putting them online. And so I made a point to choose stories that there was enough out there that could be very easily accessed by just about anybody to allow them, you know what, I read this chapter. Chapter's not, you know, you said 20 chapters. I don't want to freaking it out. It's not, it's not a thousand page book. Each chapter is about 10 to 12 pages. So I can't cover a whole story in 10 to 12 pages. I just do enough to kind of tease the issues out to where if you're really interested in it, I, I try to provide in the back of the book all the resources and all the places you can go to find out more about this stuff. Yeah, and they they do look quite intriguing. I mean, I'm interested to note some of the uh, the operational names. I mean, there's a there's a lovely British one called Blue Peacock, which I'm looking forward to uh, asking you about. Um, and then there's Acoustic Kitty and Project Fantasia. Um, I mean, the, looking at the chapter list, it looks like the majority of them are, in fact, Cold War operations. Well, the most important thing that I wanted to focus on was times in which we believe that there's a true existential threat. So all of the chapters are either the Second World War or the Cold War. Because these kinds of innovations, if you want to use that word, these kinds of ideas don't just pop up randomly. They're the direct result of people feeling desperate, desperate to do anything. When normal things aren't working, people start coming up with different ideas. And in some cases, that's amazing, right? If you think outside the box, you come up with the SR-71 or you come up with you know, some crazy operation that wins the war. Sometimes the ideas aren't so good. And, you know, with desperation, you come up with some ideas that maybe you probably would not have or almost certainly would not have under normal circumstances. And so the Second World War and the Cold War were two time periods where we in the West, whether in the United States or the British, felt as though there was a true threat to our existence, a real definition of existential threat, whether it was the Nazis or if it was the Soviets and their atomic weapons. And that's what drove us to make these kinds of decisions. And so it's very purposeful. It's very purposeful that I chose time periods where because of existential circumstances, we made a conscious decision and sometimes a subconscious decision to make really questionable decisions. Right. And and did you speak to some of the people that worked on these projects? Yeah, no, that's the fun part is, especially the ones that were Cold War oriented where people were still alive. Um there are several chapters in there where there were people who were still around um, and had the opportunity to kind of talk to them and get their insight. And, and that really helped to, I'm not a psychologist, I'm not trying to psychoanalyze anybody, but it really helped to kind of get in the mindset of the people who are making these decisions. Because any good historian is not going to just kind of look at things through our historical hindsight bias of being in 2019 and knowing the war ended, we won. The Cold War ended, we won. Um, so why are people acting this way? This is silly. Like that's, that's not very fair. It's not fair to the people in the 1940s or the 1960s or the seventies or the eighties, because 
They didn't know how it was going to end. And so by talking to these people, I could truly start to understand and put myself in their shoes and be empathetic to the feeling they had. Because, you know, every one of these chapters is going to get the reader to go, what were they thinking? I, I just don't, I don't want that to be, I don't want that to be a derogatory way of looking at it. I actually want people to sit down and go, what were they thinking? Why were they making these decisions? They're all serious people. You know, these are people, you know, Winston Churchill, Franklin Roosevelt, John Kennedy, Fidel Castro, Carl Sagan, that are making these extraordinarily wacky decisions. And we look at them now and kind of laugh, but if, if you want to be a good historian about it, you put yourselves in their shoes. And so people who are actually working on these programs helped me to do that. Because, you know, Vince, these sound ridiculous now, but at the time we were terrified. And that was a very good perspective for me. No, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, with with my project with Cold War Conversations, um, speaking to people who've experienced something firsthand gives you far more insight than reading it from a history book and also the opportunity to ask questions that perhaps the history books haven't asked people as well. Yeah, it's very easy for us to, you know, apply our, our hindsight bias in a judgmental way. Uh, even with things like Joe McCarthy, Joe McCarthy was a horrible human being, but you can see why people listen to him and you can kind of look at that and go, all right, this is a huge mistake. This was a bunch of nonsense. This is a drunk guy who had no idea what he was talking about, but I get why people were so afraid. And so it, 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 it's very easy for us to kind of dismiss people's feelings and people's thoughts from this time period because we know how it ended, right? We know we win, right? The cold war ends. No one dies in a nuclear holocaust. So we can be a little bit more objective about it. But objectivity does us no good if we truly want to understand the reasons why these guys made these decisions. Because they weren't being objective at the time. They were acting out of fear. They were acting out of desperation. And the only way to really understand that is to put ourselves in their shoes. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, you know, the the, the classic case is, you know, the the fall of the Soviet Union and the fall of the Berlin Wall. I mean, you know, none of the, well, some of the intelligence services, I guess, had some inkling, but only it looks like towards the latter stages as to as to what was happening. Um, and it caught, you know, most people by surprise. Right. And in, in hindsight, we can look back and we can start in the 1970s, look at stagflation and understand that in the early 1980s, you know, there was one computer for every like 50 households in the Soviet Union, whereas in the West, it was one for every two. And we can look at kind of how the middle military industrial complex in the Soviet Union was bankrupting the country and how Afghanistan was also and go, how did they miss all of that? Well, because it was happening at the time, they weren't able to put everything together in a very comfortable library setting like we are today. I mean, we see this all the time where we have people come in. How did you miss 9-11? Yeah. Right? How did how did the intelligence community miss nine eleven? There's all these absolute blinking red warning signs. Well, it's great that you see that in 2019. No one saw that in summer of 2001. Just like in 1989, when solidarity was allowed to remain in place and, and not in the, the leadership wasn't rearrested. No one saw that coming. I mean, if you look at the elections in Poland, every the communist candidates thought they were going to yeah. win. But they were going to get swept out of office. And, and so even in Eastern Europe, people didn't see this coming. So it's very unfair to say MI6 or CIA should have seen it coming. Just like, you know, look at 9-11 or anything yeah, else. Yeah, no, abs absolutely, absolutely. Um, so back to the book and bearing in mind that we are Cold War Conversations, can you share some of the stories that you've uncovered? Or could I suggest one or two that we could talk 
talk about that sort of thing? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, a lot of the book is Cold War, so you you, you want to pick out the ones okay. you like. Okay. Um, Blue Peacock, I like because it just sounds yeah. so British. <laughs> well, it, well, it is. I mean, Blue Blue, Ke- Ple- uh, Blue Peacock is based um, on nothing that you know. A lot of American code names are based on. You know, sometimes things are really on the nose. Operation Iraqi Freedom, right? Where it's like, oh, I can kind of figure out what this operation's all about. The British Rainbow Codes were very random. And it's actually only happenstance that a bird name, Peacock, was used in this particular operation. But this is a time in which it appeared as though the Soviets had a huge advantage against NATO and conventional forces. Um, we know now, again, in hindsight from decades later, this advantage probably wasn't as big as everyone assumed, but at the time, everyone thought NATO was in big trouble. And one of the ways the ideas that people came up with to try to stop the Soviet advance across the Fulda Gap and into Western Europe was nuclear landmines, essentially build a big nuke uh, and bury it in the ground or put it under a lake or put it under a bridge system. Essentially, this would kind of destroy many of the access points to Western Europe or would create choke points that the the allies NATO could use to hammer away at some of the Soviet motorized rifle divisions and and slow down the advance to the English channel. Um, So this is self-explained. It's kind of straightforward, right? Nuclear landmines doesn't sound all that complicated, but this is a time period in which nuclear weapons technology hadn't quite reached the level where it is certainly in the 1960s or the 1970s. And the real trouble was if you're going to plant a nuclear weapon in Eastern Europe underneath the ground, um, you got to have real issues when it comes to cold. Because if anyone's been to, let's say, Hungary or anyone's been to Eastern Germany or anyone's been to you know, the frontiers of Czechoslovakia, the Czech Republic, in the wintertime, it is frigidly cold. And most of the electronics at the time, not necessarily plutonium didn't care, but most of the electronic, the trigger device – the conventional um, explosives used for the implosion bomb, which is really kind of the, the bomb they're still using at the time, all needed somewhat warm temperatures in order to fully function. So the key was, how do you keep it warm? And that's really where Blue Peacock kind of takes a dramatic turn off of normal. Um, there were some more straightforward ideas, like kind of insulating the nuclear landmine with big fluffy pillows, big fiberglass pillows. Um, which is wacky enough as it is, but the idea that really kind of came to fruition with Blue Peacock was because the inside of the mine was so spacious that you could put live chickens inside of it. And live chickens, because of the body heat of the live chickens, you could keep the electronics of the landmine warm for a week at a time before you had to go back in and add more food to keep the chickens alive. And so this was the idea. This was a British plan to keep their nuclear landmines functional by sticking live chickens inside the actual apparatus. Um, just uh, still digesting, <laughs> digesting that. <laughs> um, but I guess as, as you as you said earlier, at the time, you know, how do you solve this heating problem? You know, and this is some good out of the box thinking potentially. Um, well, it made a ton of sense. I mean, chickens are, are, are homeothermic. Essentially, it's a fancy way of saying that their body temperature changes according to their environment. And most of us, most, most animals are. The difference is a human being 
if we're out in the cold, our body temperature will drop, but there's only so far it can drop before we die, right? We don't have a lot of leeway, but chickens actually have dozens of degree leeway between their normal body temperature and when they drop dead. So there's a lot of heat they can give off before they die. So they're almost the perfect heat source for these landmines. And, and so intelligence and military operations like this are all about problem solving. And actually, I think one of the great things about this book is that this is just, you know, a list of chapters of people who had very, very hard problems to solve. And instead of doing it a normal way, they decided to do it a little bit differently. And But it's still the whole purpose of everything was I've got a problem. The problem is incredibly difficult. No one else can figure out how to solve it. So here's my idea. Brilliant. Brilliant. No, I, I like that one. So, so staying within an animal theme, Acoustic Kitty, what, what was that one about? Well, this is another, again, problem that the, the CIA in this case needed to solve was that covert listening devices or bugs in the 1950s and 60s weren't as advanced as they are today. I know it sounds like a truism. Of course, we've gotten more advanced today. But the problem they ran into was that they recorded everything. Now, you might think that's good for a bug, right? You want to get everything you can. But by everything, I mean, if you put a, a bug on the bottom of a park bench, you wouldn't just get the conversation of the two men sitting on the bench. You would get dogs walking by, people's footsteps, the wind blowing, butterflies fluttering, birds chirping. In audio technology at the time had a very difficult problem that they couldn't solve. Essentially, that was stripping away the important part of the conversation. So you would just have a mishmash, a cacophony of sounds that it made it very hard to actually listen to the conversation that you were trying to listen to in the first place, right? The whole point of the bug was the two guys sitting on the bench. Instead, you got car horns and you got everything else. So for years, the CIA's technical service division, essentially the Q of CIA, tried to figure out a way to create an artificial means of getting rid of the sound, of, of kind of finding a way to filter out all the stuff we didn't want. And our ear does this for us, right? Human beings and a lot of animals have something in our ear called a cochlea. And the cochlea is a brilliant organ that has gone through millions and millions of years of evolution to get to the way that it is today. But the cochlea allows our brain to focus in on a conversation regardless of what's going on around us. So if you've been in a loud rock concert, if you were in a loud bar, or if there's horns and sirens going off, you can still have a conversation with the person in front of you. Now, maybe you're yelling at each other to get to be heard over the sound, but your brain has the ability to understand what the conversation is. So can CIA create an artificial cochlea? The answer is no. And the answer even to this day is no. You may have heard of cochlear implants, a very modern medical device. That's as close as we get, and that's still not perfect today. So in the 1960s, the CIA didn't stand a chance, right? The technology at the time didn't allow them to do it. So they were ready to give up, and they said, man, we just can't figure out how to solve this bug problem. And more than likely, and there's no evidence of this, but I like to think of it this way, more than likely at a bar one night at 2 in the morning, or maybe somebody woke up in the middle of the night out of a dream at 4 in the morning and said, why are we spending all our time trying to create an artificial cochlea? Why don't we take something that already has a natural cochlea and turn it into a covert listening device. And Acoustic Kitty was born out of that. And essentially what this was is the CIA took a cat, like an average house cat, and um, depending on who you ask, uh, either they, in a surgical suite, had a veterinarian do surgery on it, opened it up, put a power pack, a battery pack inside its abdomen, 
ran wires up into its ears so that it actually could pick up the sound through its ears, through its natural listening process, and then wired an antenna down along its spine, either weaved it into the hair or actually had the antenna going up into the tail of the cat. That's generally what we know from history. Now, at that point, the story diverges. A man named Bob Wallace, Robert Wallace, who was the director of the kind of succeeding agency to technical service division called OTS, Office of Technical Services, still CIHQ, it just has a different name. Bob was the head of OTS after Acoustic Kitty, so in the 70s. Bob is also a board member of the Spy Museum, so I see Bob all the time and talk about somebody who was there, right? So I sat down with Bob and I said, tell me about Acoustic Kitty. And he tells a story that's relatively straightforward. They, they tested the cat. They actually tried to get it to go through motions. You know, they tried to train it to do what it was supposed to do. And if anyone's had a cat, kind of laughs when you say training a cat. And then they realized that it just wouldn't be cost effective and it's not really combat ready. And so the program was canceled. And we know the program existed. We know the program was canceled because there are CIA documents out there that are canceling the program. They said, you know, you did a great job. You know, you had some real good scientific advances. But at this time, it just doesn't make sense for us to do this. So that's one version of the story. And if it's the only version of the story, this wouldn't belong in the book because it's really boring. There's another version of the story by a guy named Victor Marchetti. And he was a high up with CIA. He was uh, one of the executives there until he got disillusioned and quit the agency and then wrote a book about it, essentially called CIA and the Cult of Intelligence. And by the title, no. you can tell it's not a flattering picture of the agency. And he wrote about Acoustic Kitty. And he said that just like Bob did, that they cut it open and they wired it up and then they put it through testing processes. And, and so that's exactly the same. The story doesn't change from there. What does change is that when, according to Marchetti, when the CIA realized the cat was not really being trained all that well, they went back in surgery and wired up its brain to actually be able to control the cat better using brain stimulation. Yeah. Now, this sounds like science fiction. But, but at the exact same time, the CIA had been working on a program called MKUltra. And most people maybe have heard of MKUltra because of LSD testing, mm. Manchurian candidate stuff. But MKUltra was actually about 150 different programs. LSD was only one of them. And some of the other ones dealt with electronic brain stimulation and how could you make animals do what we wanted them to. So there's some plausibility, perhaps, that we had discovered, we the CIA, I'm, I'm not in the CIA, but we America, had discovered a way to kind of get around the cat's natural instinct to be kind of an asshole and, and go from there and try to make it do what it's supposed to do. So the story is the cat would wander off in the middle of testing to go search for food because cats get hungry. They don't care about anything else. So they went back in and they rewired the brain to overcome that instinct to search for food. And eventually the cat with some wiring and some tweaking would do all the tests exactly they want to it would go through mazes and it would go, when it was programmed to go sit over in a certain area, it would go sit over in a certain area to the point at which the CIA decided to do a field test. And in the field test that took place in a park in Northwest Washington, DC. And this is a, where a lot of embassies are and where there's a lot of important people. And there's a lot of gorgeous parks and people walking dogs and squirrels and cats and everything. So it was perfect for a field test. And where Marchetti's story ends um, is in somewhat tragic fashion. The CIA drives up there, puts Acoustic Kitty down on the street, programs the cat to go run over into a park across the street and sit down and listen to two men chatting on a bench. And to their amazement, when they put it down on the street, it did exactly what it was planned to do. It started 
making a beeline directly for the two men sitting on the bench. And you can imagine the kind of pride in the CIA technicians when this happened. Like they had created a way, essentially created a robo cat that was going to revolutionize the way intelligence collection was done. And as they watch it run across the street, pride swelled inside of them up until the point where a taxi cab ran over a kid in the middle of the street. And so, and so their multi-million dollar experiment that they had, you know, had so much high hopes in was sitting on the street sparking as let's say so much roadkill. Um, and, and I try to again, put myself in the shoes of the people at the time and be empathetic. I cannot imagine the panic and the sadness not only did they, you know, a cat had died, which is sad enough as it is, but all the work they'd put into doing this was sitting there smushed on the street. They couldn't just drive away because, God forbid, the Soviets figure out what they're doing, or even worse, the Washington Post finds out what's going on. That would be a real problem. So the sad part you imagine is that they had to go kind of scrape Acoustic Kitty off the street wow. and get wow. away before that, anyone saw them. That's incredible because I, I, I did see something about, you know, that you know some of these schemes were – you know, ultimately deemed too dangerous. And I think the one that I was sort of familiar with was the attempt at nuclear propulsion of aircraft, because I think they, they were looking at using it on like a Saturn V to get them to Mars. Sure. I mean, that, that was an idea that even started during the time of the Manhattan Project, because as some of these atomic scientists, both, you know, many of them from Eastern Europe, but some who had settled in Great Britain, some who settled in the United States, they, they were scientists. Their first priority wasn't necessary to build a bomb, although they were being asked to do so. Many of them already started thinking about peaceful uses of nuclear power. And one of the most obvious ones for a lot of them was, can we create an engine that would allow for an aircraft to fly essentially on end, right? There would be no need to land and refuel. This thing could just fly and fly and fly. All you would need to do is kind of rotate the pilots and it would never have to land on the ground. The issue that, of course, they run into is how do you keep the flight attendants, how do you keep the pilots from getting cancer of everything within a couple months of operation? And so shielding was a key issue and crashes would have been a key issue. Um, planes tend to fall out of the sky regardless of how well they're built. I mean, even today that happens all too often. And then, you know, I, I, certainly people have the ideas of potential mm -hmm. counterterrorism issues. I can imagine a 9-11 with a nuclear-powered aircraft would be pretty scary. Um, it really came down to no one could really figure out. Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia, and I support Cold War conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. I think it's vital to record the firsthand accounts of people who lived and experienced the Cold War um, because it illustrates history in a way that a book never can. So thank you so much for the podcast. It's my favorite podcast, and I look forward to it every week. To be like Rhonda and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War, as a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free, you'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more. Who should be in charge of this program? The Air Force thought it was important because they wanted, they wanted long-range bombers that never needed to refuel. But 
at the same time, the Air Force was doing other things. This is, you know, at a time period where the Air Force is building supersonic aircraft and long-range bombers, and they're in charge of American intercontinental ballistic missiles. And this was not a huge priority for them. The Atomic Energy Commission, which is in charge of all American atomic energy, was lackadaisical about this as well, because their big issue was, let's build up the American nuclear arsenal. Uh, this is a time when we're trying to rapidly build up our ability to you know, kill everybody on Earth. Uh, and so the AEC's priority wasn't to build a nuclear-powered aircraft. It was to build nuclear weapons. So kind of the Air Force looked at the AEC, and the AEC looked at the Air Force, and both of them waited for the other guy to do something. In the end, no one really did. Uh, in the end, there was a lot of small-scale testing. There was a lot of people who came together with ad hoc committees to kind of figure out what was going on. But nothing really set in stone. And so it kind of languished and then died before it got a chance to really move forward. Yeah, no, thank, thankfully, because that one does sound like one of the really downright dangerous um, ones. You must have some favorites in here, surely. Have you got a couple? I mean, we've talked about a couple of them already. Um, I mean, there's a reason the book begins with Acoustic Kitty, um, because that one, uh, I give talks at the museum, and the museum is an educational institution. It's here for fun. So you give a lot of lectures, whether it's for kids or adults or everybody in between. And any chance I get, I try to tell the Acoustic Kitty story. It's just so good. Uh, and every audience loves it. I don't care if you're a little kid or if you're an adult. Talking about cats and robotic cats and the crazy ideas here. Um, some of the other ones that I really like are where you get everyday figures that we think we know about, whether it's someone like Carl Sagan, who was involved in the program that actually the book is named after of setting off an atomic bomb on the moon. Or do you get somebody that, that you might not know their name, but you know some of the products they've created? Um, the guy who's in charge of the nuking the moon program, a guy named Leonard Rifle was a guy who really invented the teleprompter, which is like every sporting event on earth now uses a teleprompter, whether, you know, whether men on TV talk about like draw circles around weather patterns. Well, that was his invention. And he invented a bunch of other stuff too. He was the deputy director of the Apollo program, right? So later on, instead of nuking the moon, he helped put men on the moon. So these are kind of not really guys who belong in insane asylums. These are people who are incredibly important for the history of the world. Um, and so it's fun to look at some of the decision-making that people that we would assume would not be making these bad decisions, uh, but do anyway. Um, one of the, really my favorite one, if I had to choose, um, was a world war two operation. So let me, never mind. You're a cold war podcast. Let me stick to the cold war. My favorite cold war one. Thank you. Thank you for that. <laughs> Although I am no a problem, World War no II problem. fan as well, but uh, we have to stick with the subject matter of the podcast. <laughs> I'll stick with it. It was, was, was Operation Washtub, which, incidentally, there's going to be a British version of this book coming out probably within six months. And Washtub's pulled out of it. So if you want to read about Washtub, you got to get the American version. In Project Washtub, I'm replacing it with some British-specific stories, but Washtub was a program in the 1950s to develop a, a group of what we call stay-behinds in the intelligence world. Essentially, this was in the fear that the Soviet Union would invade the United States through Alaska was a real fear in the 1950s. And so the FBI combined with the Air Force Office of Special Operations, so this is like Air Force intelligence, recruited and trained a group of Alaskan wilderness guides, essentially, to become stay-behind spies, 
saboteurs, and just general partisans, guerrillas. Much in the same way that um, the Jedburg teams, made up of British and American special operators, jumped into occupied France to train the French resistance during World War II. Or the same way the 10th Special Forces in Berlin was designed during the Cold War as a stay behind. So that essentially if the Soviets invaded, the army retreated, these guys would kind of blend into the countryside. And they'd report back on intelligence about Russian forces, about order of battle, report back about Russian dispersion of the important weapon systems like radar or anti-aircraft. But they would also carry out sabotage operations. They would blow up bridges. They would assassinate high-level Russian officials. Or they would form fully, you know, trained guerrilla groups to fight a asymmetrical war against the Russians in Alaska. And what I like so much about this is that the cast of, there's a lot that's been recently declassified by recently, like in the last five years, declassified about this operation. And there's thousands and thousands of pages of documents about the people who made up Operation Washtub. And every single person, if they put them in a movie or a TV show, you would think that they are making it up. Because every single person is the personalities are extraordinary, the people they chose for this program. There were all these backwoods guys who were, you know, one of them actually, his name is Peter Snow, right? What better way to have an Alaskan gorilla than Peter Snow? But they all were like, you know, bear hunting guides or deep fishing guides, or they all like own canoes and cabins on the woods. Talk about like, I imagine them all with big bushy beards wearing like, Deer skin yeah. it sounds it, it's interesting because it sounds very i don't know whether you've come across the auxiliary units in the in the because yeah, it's similar yeah. to that because i mean in in britain with the threat of german invasion there was this offshoot of the home guard called the auxiliary units and they hired like poachers and gamekeepers and and people like that yeah. it's very yeah. it's very similar okay. to that. Yep. and then that's one of the, the great things about this is that you know this was actually one of the real chapters in the book where they, they went pretty far with this. I mean, they train these guys. They, they, they went through paramilitary training. They, they learn all the stuff that the OSS and the SOE had learned in world war II to try to fight against the Germans. Um, you know, they, they're fair, you know, with fair baron fighting mm-hmm. ta- knife tactics and things like that. Um, all the things that you can't possibly imagine some, you know, six foot five, 300 pound, bear tracker with a bushy beard learning how to do um, it's, it's made for TV. I mean, I didn't make up the story, right? It's just, you look at it and start laughing and be like, I can imagine this. So it was a lot of fun doing that research just because it all has just been declassified. Yeah. And d- did these guys have lists of people they were going to assassinate? Because there was that with the auxiliary units, you know, they had sort of. Yeah. So there's still, there's still some stuff that's redacted. Um, but they, you know, they would basically be given uh, information as they went along. So there's no real – the fun part about this is how half-assed it was, right? There was no real information inside the documents about how they were going to communicate other than like shortwave radio and how they were actually going to get information to them. They did do some code training like learning how to do one-time pads and learning how to do morse and stuff like that. But there's very little information about how the actual bureaucracy of this would work who would actually be giving the orders once the war began because it was a joint FBI, which is a civilian agency versus an air force, which is a military agency working together to train these guys who would be in charge once, you know, once world war three kicked off. And, and so I'm not sure this would have worked 
Um, the home guards sound like they have a much better, uh, the auxiliary force sounds like a much better chance of working if the Nazis invaded. Um, but at the same time, uh, it's, it's, it's fascinating to see how much money we spent training these guys up for a potential invasion of Alaska by the Soviets during the Cold War. Yeah, and d- d- because uh, with the auxiliary units, they built bunkers, underground bunkers for them to hide out in. Were, the, were these guys just expected to be camping out in the backwoods? Well, one of the, re- one of the kind of the criteria for, for who they recruited were people that had access to cabins out in the middle of the woods and people that knew where they could go from point A to point B and find a place to sleep. These were all the roughest guys in the world that could live off the land, that could live off of hunting that could um, always find a place to shack up if necessary. Um, that was one of the kind of prerequisites of, of hiring or, or recruiting these people for this operation. Like me, I'd be screwed. I mean, I'd be like, where's, yeah, where's, yeah. where's the, the hot water? Like, I, I, I'm not right. Where's the hot water? Where's that yeah. Wi-Fi? Uh, but these are people who like for fun, like their daily lives, they live inside a cabin yeah. without running water and electricity. So they're the perfect okay, and I guess kind of you know the, the problem with the auxiliary units. Just going back to them, it is that because the UK is such a small country, there's not that many places to hide, and so their actual life expectancy wasn't great. Whereas obviously Alaska is a massive geographical area, um, and presumably lots of places to hide. So sure, but the, the yeah. idea wasn't to hide, right? The idea was to actually do some damage. So if you wanted to run off and hide, you have all, lots of places you can go. Alaska is massive. But the idea was to spy on the Soviets. The idea was to make their lives miserable. You know, really, it's kind of taking what Churchill said about the SOE. It set, yeah. set, set Alaska yeah. ablaze. And in doing so, you would have to be up close and personal with Soviet soldiers. And that, that meant their life expectancy probably was very low as well. Because the Soviets, as we know, looking at their operations in Eastern Europe, looking at how they cracked down on the Hungarian uprising in 56, they didn't really have a lot of mercy towards anyone who potentially be a guerrilla force against them. And so it, it's likely that these Alaskan stay-behinds, uh, a lot of them would have died. And actually, they built in redundancy into their system to make sure that they had enough coverage. If one cell got rolled up, they had other ones that could fill in for it. And none of the yeah. cell leaders knew who the others were. So that if you did roll up one cell, it didn't necessarily mean you brought down the entire network. So they weren't stupid about this. And in fact, they did study a lot of what the resistance groups during World War II were doing and try to replicate that and do what they did right. And then to fix some of the problems about how they were constantly being infiltrated by German intelligence and everything else. So this is, this is basically taking what SOE, OSS and others did in Europe during the Second World War and applying it to the tundra of Alaska. Yeah. Wow. No, that's a that's a good one. It's a shame that one's coming out for the UK version. Maybe people will have to buy both both uh, different versions. Uh, yeah, I think that's a good idea. Yeah. <laughs> um. Obviously, we've gone through some really interesting ones there. What What was the most surprising thing? Would you say you discovered in in your research? Um, I think one of the most surprising things was that. Many of these ideas could potentially be dusted off today. Um, and you even see some of the ideas from them today. Um, you know, the idea behind um, some of the special weapons, by that I mean chemical and biological weapons that were thought about during this time period and then for whatever reason, you know, 
they decided not to use them. It's not because people got morality all of a sudden. It's not because people thought that the law and the treaties that we had signed against use of biological chemical weapons were important. It's because some other extraneous fact came into play. So the surprising thing to me in many cases was that these are not so far off from being still applicable today and maybe even more so today. I mean, I think that most people that didn't grow up during the cold war don't have a real appreciation of kind of nuclear weapons. And so nuclear weapons, as we've unfortunately seen um, in recent years have been kind of thrown around as just another weapon. You know, what's the big deal? It's just, just a bigger bomb. Well, those of us who are a little older, remember a little bit about, you know, how devastating I am. I didn't watch Nagasaki happen. I grew up during the eighties, but at least then I had a full appreciation of what nuclear weapons could mean. You know, here in the United States, we had the TV move the day after. Yeah, yeah. You got no. threads in the UK, right? Yeah, so, and the war game prior to that. Yeah, we were under yep. no illusion what, what that was going to mean. Yeah, so we understood, at least at a basic level, that a nuclear war would be horrendous. And the problem, I think, that you see today from, you know, these kids today, or, or, or maybe even the adults that have just forgotten about that. And so nuclear weapons seem to be something that's a lot more casually discussed today than it had been in the past. And so some of these ideas about nuclear weapons, which there's a whole section in the back of the book about nuclear weapons, the book's in four different sections. We talked about animals. That's one of them. Nuclear weapons is one of them as well. And many of these are ones that people are still kind of talking about. I mean, one of the chapters talks about whether we could use nuclear weapons to um, weaken hurricanes or to make hurricanes turn. And you can understand this question being brought up in the 1960s when everyone was kind of figuring out whether or not nuclear weapons could be used for peaceful purposes. But if you look mm-hmm. at the NOAA website, and so the NOAA is the American um, agency that focuses on weather um, and the oceans, it's the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. Right. So it's weather, it's ocean patterns, it's, it's about climate change and stuff like that too. NOAA on their website has a frequently asked questions section. And one of the questions that apparently is so frequently asked that they included in there was, can we use nuclear weapons against hurricanes? Wow. So this is not a question from the 1960s. This is still a question that's being asked today. Yeah. And sure, in the 1980s, the answer would be, that's ridiculous. No. But today people are like, well, you know, maybe in, in the here's people start talking about clean nuclear weapons. Then I just start cringing. Um, and so you get to a point where, I worry a little bit that some of the lessons that were hard learned during the Cold War will be forgotten, even not just by a brand new generation that didn't live through it, but by the generation that did. And we're so detached from it now that we kind of forget why we were afraid in the first place. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, there's a there's a reason why there's an atmospheric nuclear test ban. Um, because we, we learned it was really bad for us. And the thought of uh, even using, you know, potentially, well, lower yield nuclear weapons to try and um, alter uh, things that are probably the result of climate change. But anyway, let's not go too right. far there. <laughs> we can go as far as you want. Uh, I mean, you're not going to you're not going to insult me. I know I know everyone outside of the United States has a perspective of us that, you know, science. What's that? Um, but no. Yeah. Because I think I, I did read somewhere there was talk of using 
low-yield nuclear weapons in a battlefield environment in in present day. Is that is that correct, or did I just imagine that? I mean, there's always conversation about called dial dial yield nukes, where you can make them low yield. Um, this is again not just the Trump administration, but other administrations have talked about like, can we use you know talking smaller than Hiroshima and Nagasaki? So mm-hmm. can can we use like not even in the kilotons, like in the hundreds of tons of yield um, in particular battlefield situations. And thankfully they haven't gotten very far. Um, These conversations are usually non-starters, which is happy for me. Um, I think you saw uh, a desire to do something like that, that was somewhat sated by the use of the Moab. Yeah. uh, The mother of all. Yeah. So this is the thermo. Right. The thermal. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that basically looks like a nuke, but it's not. It's just a very, very large chemical-based explosive. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, maybe whoever was behind that idea got kind of what they needed from watching that go off. I don't know. Um, I mean, of course, the fear will always be that countries that have deep-seated rivalries, not like the United States and Russia, I'm talking like historic religious-based rivalries like, you know, India and Pakistan. Yeah you know, who have fought three wars since independence and are both nuclear powers and almost fought a war a couple of weeks ago. Um, you know, that could be really problematic. And, and the, the hope I have is that we don't relearn the dangers and horrors of nuclear weapons by watching half the, the world destroy itself. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, obviously the title of the book is nuking the moon. Why, why did they think that was a good idea or what were they trying to achieve with that? This was a, um, how do I say this without cursing? Uh, this was a manhood contest <laughs> between the United States and the Soviet Union. The Soviets had just launched Sputnik yeah. in 1957, and the United States was scrambling to do something, anything, to try to reassert its supremacy in the scientific field. And the idea that they came up with was, you know what? What if we detonated an atomic bomb on the moon? along what's called the Terminator. Essentially, this is the line which the light side and the dark side of the moon meet up. And so the sun would be behind the moon and it would shine through the mushroom cloud. And everyone on Earth would be able to see American scientific dominance by watching a mushroom cloud on the moon. And, you know, this, a lot of policymakers thought this was a fantastic idea. This is a way to get ourselves back in the game after we had been so embarrassed by Sputnik. Um, so they put a guy in charge of it. I've talked about him already named Leonard Rifle, who was a polymath. This guy was good at everything. He would eventually be uh, the deputy director of the Apollo program. He would be, he worked with Enrico Fermi, uh, the Manhattan project mm-hmm. scientist. Uh, he was someone who later in life was brought into Ukraine and Belarus after the Chernobyl incident to kind of give him advice. So this is a guy who really knew his stuff. He wasn't put in charge of this program. Uh, he brought in a guy named Gerard Kuiper, and that name Kuiper might ring a bell. There's something called a Kuiper right. belt, yeah. which is out, you know, just past Neptune. It's a bunch of floating ice bodies. Well, Kuiper discovered that. That's why it's named after him. And Kuiper had a young grad student who was working with him that who was really good at math by the name of Carl Sagan, who was brought onto this this project also. And so Sagan did all the math, and Kuiper and Rifle kind of tried to figure out how it was going to work. Um, and eventually the U.S. Air Force, which had been funding the project, got cold feet. I think it had a whole lot to do with the fact that there would be no mushroom cloud on the moon. 
Um, a mushroom cloud is uh, a phenomenon here on Earth or a planet like Earth where you have a dense atmosphere where you can actually have some air that pushes down on the top of your explosion. That's where you get that kind of smushed mushroom shape. Well, the moon really has no atmosphere at all. So you wouldn't get that shape. You would just get a big dust cloud flying off into space. Now, that might still look pretty, especially if the sun is shining through it in just the right way. But it certainly wouldn't be the mushroom cloud that everyone would envision on Earth. And so the program was scrapped. One thing I really like about this particular story is that I have no idea why. There's nothing in the archives. There's nothing in the documents that gives me the definitive reason why the program was scrapped. There are a lot of people decades later talking about it. And they're applying kind of, I would argue, revisionist history to it. Like Rifle himself was like, oh, no, we didn't want to do the program because we didn't want to mess with the pristine conditions on the moon. Well, you weren't saying that in 1958. You certainly weren't saying that when the Air Force threw a bunch of money at you. You were saying that many, many years later. And, you know, even the Air Force doesn't have a good reason for why they canceled the program. So it's what's great about a lot of these is that I don't necessarily know the whole story. Maybe one day we'll know it. Maybe somebody will follow up on what I've done with some Freedom of Information Act requests of their own and kind of tackle that part of the story. But in this case, we just know it was canceled. Um, we know that uh, no one tried to detonate a bomb on the moon, although it appears as though the Soviets thought about the same idea. The Soviets had uh, several different missions called the E-Series, like E is an echo, uh, which included several ones people have heard of, the Luna missions, to kind of yeah. crash probes into the moon. Well, E-4 was supposed to be detonating a bomb on the moon, but they never got to E-4 either. They decided to give up on it. Their reasoning, actually, we know, which is ironic, right? We understand <laughs> the Soviet reasoning better than we understand the American reasoning. So talk about transparency. And their reason was was relatively straightforward, is that they were worried about launching a, a rocket uh, from the Soviet Union and it not making it into space and crashing back down into the Soviet Union with a big nuclear right. weapon on top of it. Uh, or even worse, getting a partial launch where it launches and then kind of flies off on a trajectory and then fails and then falls with this nuclear payload on somebody else's country. Yeah. Like ours yeah. or yours, which would be really problematic. So the Soviets actually are very overt about why they canceled the program. We, on the other hand, there's nothing out there that I'm satisfied tells right. me why. So nuking the moon was really almost a theatrical um, effort to just do it because we can do it and we want to show off our firepower. Yeah, there, there's no practical reason behind it whatsoever. I mean, the scientists who were involved in it tried to invent practical reasons for it. I mean, Carl Sagan, who we all know was not obsessed, but certainly had a healthy appetite to look at things like the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. Like wanted to, if you blew up a nuke on the moon, you could kind of look at some of the biology of some of the kind of underlying moon rocks and things like that. Others wanted to kind of understand the, the geology of the moon. If you if you nuked it, you could understand the geology a little bit better. But all of these scientific criteria, these scientific advantages, were kind of attached to the program afterwards. No one had these in mind when the program was devised. The program was essentially to say. Hey world, the United States is better than the Soviets. And here's, we can show everybody. And you don't even have to turn on the TV. You can just walk outside and watch the show. <laughs> Unbelievable. Unbelievable. I, I was, I was going to ask you to explain why people should buy the book, but I think you've 
illustrated admirably why people should. There's some fascinating operation names in here, a couple of which I, I am familiar with, but um, it looks like a really interesting, just a, a really important piece of Cold War history that's sort of uh, not known about, as well as there's World War II history in there as well. Well, what I tried to do more than anything else was to take serious history and make it accessible. Uh, so you don't need to have a PhD in history to read this. You don't need to be a hardcore historian because these are stories that I kind of try to tell in a narrative framework or kind of storytelling. But at the same time, it's not dumbed down, right? This is not written for kids. There's a lot of naughty language in here. It's definitely not written for kids, but it includes real hardcore research history at the same time. So, you know, I'm trying to kind of walk the line of being accessible to the average person, but not dumbed down for the expert. And I think, I think, I hope that I've accomplished both. I mean, to me, that's kind of the Holy grail of a history book that one that you can read and enjoy and actually kind of laugh out loud at some of the ridiculousness of these programs, but at the same time, realizing that you're reading something that someone like me spent a lot of time researching. I think it's important and, you know, trying to make this history accessible because I have read a number of books, as we all have, that have been written by great academics, but sometimes the language is just a little bit too dry. And I'm not saying that the book should always be entertaining, but you need to enjoy reading it i guess is is what i'm trying to say oh yeah what's what's the point in writing good history if no one's going to read it right i mean it's you know i I've, I've dealt with professors and with academics who actually argue that if it's popular it's not good and no no that's ridiculous uh you can have it both right you can write well-written interesting history that is really well researched and I hope I've done that. I think I have, um, you know, the people out there will be the judge of that. Um, but that's really what I set out. To yeah. My, my, my entire goal here was to take serious, hardcore historical research, real stories, a real message of kind of desperation, existential threats, but make it fun because you can't serious up these stories. They're so ridiculous that if you try to take them too seriously, you kind of actually look stupid. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. And when it when is the book published? In the United States or on Amazon or wherever, May 7th is when it comes okay. out. Okay. And uh, for us, the other side of the pond? That's a good question. <laughs> uh, the, the, the British version is being finalized now. It'll have the same title, so I imagine it's going to be probably another half a yeah. year before okay. it comes out. Okay, that's fine. That's fine. We can, we can wait, although I'm disappointed that uh, – Project Wash Tub's not going to be in there, but hey, I'll have to get the US version as well. Yeah, if you're traveling through the United States, you know, it'll be at all the airports and all that other place too, so you can grab the American right. version of it. Great stuff. Well, um, with authors that I interview, um, I normally have a quick fire round at sure. the end. So um, first question I just wanted to ask you was, just tell me a bit more about the, the day job in the International Spy Museum. Yes, I can tell you about the historian part. The curator part, I'm still trying to figure out. I've been here over five years. I still don't know what that <laughs> word means. Um, essentially, my job is the subject matter inside the museum. And, and, and on a day-to-day -day basis, when we reopen, which we will on May 14th, 
I don't even know what that's going to be because the entire time I've been here at the museum, we've been planning this new museum for the last five years. And a lot of it is coming up with what stories are we going to tell? How do we acquire artifacts? How do we tell the story, right? How do we make it like we talked about? Mm. Not only historically accurate, but also entertaining at the same time. So a lot of that means I talk to people in the field. I talk to other historians. I, I'm, I have a very close relationship with the history offices of the intelligence agencies, uh, both here in the United States and then abroad. Um, I mean, to give you an idea, members of our, our board include people like Dermot Turing, who's Alan Turing's nephew, right. um, who is a Bletchley Park um, board of, of whatever. Uh, we call it board of advisors, but it's something different at Bletchley. Um, Stella Remington, former head of MI5, is on mm-hmm. our board also. So, you know, we do have connections around the world. Um, so a lot of it's trying to figure out, okay, how do we get across the broad ideas that we're trying to do with an, a, a visitorship that might only have an hour and a half to go through an entire museum and might only want to read a couple labels? So that a lot of that is just kind of strategizing how to create a well-done, informative museum, but also one that is interesting enough that people will want to know what you're trying to give them. Yeah. Yeah. And and do you do sort of rotating exhibitions as well to try and keep the content fresh and keep people coming back? So we will be. Yeah. Uh, in our prior location, we didn't have the space to do that. But in the current location, the one we're about to open, we have a ton of space for that. So um, it's always been kind of the argument, the criticism of locals is that the Spy Museum is great, but I've seen it. And if you've seen it once, but that's the new museum will have a constantly rotating space with maybe multiple temporary exhibits happening at the same time. Great. Well, um, I'll have to try and fit that into uh, whenever I am next in the US. You've certainly whetted my appetite with that. <laughs> um, what What would you say is the most important artifact that you have in your inventory? So we have... This is not going to sound important to you, perhaps, but um, during the American Revolution, um, we had no idea how to do intelligence. The United States was clueless. Um, But there was a couple people that understood a little bit about it. Um, A man named Nathaniel Sackett had been studying both the British and the French, how they ran their intelligence organizations. He understood basic things about dead drops. He understood basic things about secret writing, about how to create spy networks and how to do coded messages, all the things you need to know how to do effective intelligence. Um, And uh, he needed to be put to work. The problem was that George Washington, who was running the whole show, had never heard of him before. He was connected eventually, uh, and Washington decided he wanted to hire Sackett. So Washington wrote a letter to Nathaniel Sackett, essentially saying, come be my intelligence chief. Sackett agreed and created the framework that allowed the United States to defeat the British during the revolution. Because as you and I both know, the Americans should not have won that war. If you look at it just from a military perspective, mm. a military perspective, the British should have waxed the Americans during the revolution. It was because of guerrilla fighting, because of intelligence and all the other things that allowed the United States to win. We have the letter that George Washington wrote to Nathaniel Sackett that created the first ever American intelligence agency. Wow. So it's really the founding document yeah. of American intelligence. Um, and, and that is, if you want to talk about importance, that's about as good as it Yeah, is. no, absolutely. You know, Vince, we forgive and forget about, you know, all of that history now. We, we, <laughs> we don't mind. <laughs> um, it's a long time it ago. It is, <laughs> it is, it is. Um, but a fascinating um, time in history, um, 
as 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 well. So, do you, you yourself have any Cold War souvenirs that you've picked up over the years? Yeah, there's a little too much to mention. I've got a lot of intelligence-based stuff, um, a lot from the early 50s uh, when the CIA was just kind of getting started. Um, little things. Um, I have a book plate from Kim Philby's library. Wow. That, um, no, that, hang on. Yeah. Hold hold the front page there. <laughs> a book plate from Kim Philby's library. How did you come about, about get, getting so, that? Um, Rafina Philby is Kim Philby's mm-hmm. widow um, in, in when he, he married her in Russia. Um, and we have someone who we work very closely with who uh, knew her very well. And so we're able, we, we, the museum actually have all of Kim Philby's everything. Um, like his pipe, his shaving kit, his hats, his clothes, his glasses, his, all the stuff that he had when he died, we have access wow. to. Um, so that included potentially other things like book plates, which actually you can see some of the book plates on display here at the museum where you will yeah. be able to. Yeah. Cause he had quite a large library, didn't he? Yeah, no, I mean, he was certainly an yeah. academic. He was somebody who, um, I mean, that's that's who you needed to be if you yeah. were going to be at high levels of British intelligence during yeah. that time. I always find interesting that film on YouTube of him lecturing to the Stasi. Um, yeah. yeah, so that that that's one of fascinating. We actually have a audio recording of him lecturing to the KGB uh, that no one's ever heard before, um, which is pretty. It's it's hard to make out, but you can kind of hear what he's saying. It's a terrible tape. Like, yeah, but it's it's right after he defected. Yeah. Uh, Fast. Yeah, it's it's incre- incredible. Yeah, because it just gives so much more insight. Because he obviously never expected that to be released anywhere, right. other than you know within the Stasi or within the KGB, and it just gives a completely different view of the guy. Well, I'll, 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 people, this is a, a very unpopular opinion, but Philby in in the people like him who are ideologically driven to spy. Um, I put them in a different category than the kind of the scumbags that did it because of pay or because of ego. Um, hmm. I, I, can't, I fault Philby because I'm on the other side of his espionage and certainly my country was as well, but I have less anger toward him than I would a Robert Hansen who was the FBI agent who just got paid off to spy. Yeah. Yeah. Or an Ames or yeah. Yeah, right, or names, yeah. right? Or, or you know, anyone who did it because of ego or because of money. If you're a true believer, I may not disagree with your politics, but I have a little bit of respect for what you've done. Um, and so Philby, I, I allow myself to be fascinated with him. Like, I feel dirty when I'm, I, I want to be fascinated about Ames or Hanson. But Philby, I'm like, you know what? I can see why he fell into this trap. I can see why in the 1930s he and the other Cambridge Five were seduced by the idea of the Soviet Union. And of course, you see how all of that collapses once he defects. Because one of our another one of our board members, Oleg Kalugin, who was a major general in the KGB before he, he left, was Philby's handler in Moscow. And his entire job was to keep Philby from drinking himself to death. Because Philby had arrived in the Soviet Union, this utopian society that he had in the 1930s believed was the future of the world and realize it was all complete nonsense. And so Oleg's job is to make sure Philby didn't basically commit suicide by drinking himself to death. I might be asking you for a few names for interviews at this, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, no, we, we could probably uh, end up 
speaking all night, um, particularly about the, uh, the the Cambridge Five. I mean, have you got anything on uh, Morris and Lona Cohen? The um, because I, I yeah, so not go on. I, all I was going to say is I do find them fascinating because they were obviously in multiple operations. The one that I find really interesting is the one in the UK where he set up as an antiquarian bookseller. And uh, they're transmitting from their bungalow in the suburbs of London back to the centre in uh, Moscow. I I just find that that fascinating. And when somebody then did renovations on the bungalow, like about twenty years later, they found further spying equipment hidden in a false wall. Yeah, I mean, we, we have we have a lot of artifacts that won't necessarily be on display just because we we can only have so much space. Um, I mean, another great name would be Melita Norwood if you yeah. want to think about a the most unlikely of all spies is the little, you know, small British woman who was, you know, in her seventies before anyone figured out what yeah. she was doing. And that new movie has um, just come out based on, yeah. well, loosely based on her life, I think with um, Judy Dench. Right. Yeah. Which is perfect. Of course. Um, <laughs> yeah. We know. I mean, those, those are just fascinating because again, they kind of fall in that same category of these people who weren't doing it for money. They weren't doing it because they'd been compromised. They weren't doing it because of ego. They're doing it because they truly believed in something. And we in the West celebrate that. We celebrate the Oleg Penkovskis, right? We celebrate the people who, because of their conscience and because of their beliefs, spy for us. And then at the same time, we go, well, Kim Philby was a scumbag. Well, he's the same. He's, he, Kim Philby is Oleg Penkovsky. Just depends on your point of view. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, it, it, it's interesting because things like Marcus Wolf, um, you know, he, he, you know, they obviously attempted to try or try him on, on the basis that he was, um, you know, betraying West Germany somehow. Whereas, right. you know, he, he was working for his country to the best that he could within that intelligence agency. Whether you agree with the politics of that country or not, that, you know, that, that was his, uh, his viewpoint. And that defense worked. Yeah. I mean, that was, yeah. 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 No, I mean, I, I'm, I'm fascinated by all of the, uh, the cold war spies and we, we could, uh, carry on talking for ages. So I better drag myself back to these other quick questions that I had. So if you were a filmmaker, what cold war incident would you make into a movie? Well, I think Project Azorian is asking for a big budget movie. That's the Glomar Explorer and the attempted theft of the K one twenty nine. Yeah, um, that that has to be done into a movie. I mean, we now have the technology through CGI and big budgets to create. I mean, if you don't know the story, listeners, um, a Soviet submarine disappeared uh, and ended up being hitting the ground of the Pacific Ocean under eighteen thousand feet of water. Um, the Soviets couldn't find it for years. We stumbled. We, the United States, stumbled upon it and said, okay, let's go steal it. Uh, and built a huge ship called the Glomar Explorer with a claw in the middle of the ship and went down there to try to grab the submarine from the bottom of the Pacific. And, you know, it's a long story, but to me, that is just begging to be told through a two-hour movie because it would be brilliant. Yeah. Howard Hughes as well in it. You know, there's well, Howard Hughes was used as part of the cover. Yeah. Story. Yeah. Um, you know, Hughes just basically like, we want to put your name on this. Is that okay? And Hughes was like, sure. <laughs> that's as far, that's as much involvement as yeah. he had. Yeah. 
but it, it allowed them to have this wacky operation and everyone just like, oh, Howard Hughes, okay. It's just kind of weird. But it, it's it's Howard a Hughes good it's a good story, the Cold War, because I think also the respect that the crew gave to the remains of the Soviet sailors that they found on the submarine is a very important part of that as well. Right, exactly. It's still classified how much of the sub that we we acquired, but we certainly acquired some of it for multiple reasons. We know this one is that there's a piece of the K-129 in the Spy (laughs) Museum. Another reason is that there is video footage of a burial at sea of some of the sailors that were recovered from this submarine um, that was eventually given to the Soviets to show them that we had, you know, taken care of their their dead their dead soldiers, well, sailors yeah. in this case. Yeah. No, good choice. Good choice. I'd I'd pay good money to go and see that. Um, what piece of music would you have as the soundtrack? <laughs> well, it'd have to be seventies stuff, right? So this would be yeah, yeah, because the 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 photos of the crew, um, even though they were CIA, um, they were kind of told to kind of grow out their sideburns and kind of their mustaches and stuff like that. So it, it would have to be a heavy, a heavy 70s soundtrack. I'm not trying to go full disco. You know, maybe you do like early 70s classic rock, so maybe some Led Zeppelin thrown in there. But yeah. it would have to be, that That would have to be part of the soundtrack. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm liking that. I'm liking that. That that that, that That's good. That's good. Um, so if you could invite three personalities from the Cold War period to have – a few beers or some coffees with, who would they be? So George Kennan, I'm a diplomatic historian. I'd be crazy if I didn't want to have a couple beers with George Kennan. Yeah. Um, I'm an intelligence historian, so Alan Dulles uh, yeah. would be somebody because we could just talk about the Second World War for hours and then switch over to the CIA. And then I'm torn between either Fidel Castro or Che Guevara. Um, you, you could have both that, you know, I'm not fixed on three. <laughs> you can, well, I'm you not sure they would just argue with each other the whole time. I'd probably yeah. have to pick one or the other. I'd probably go with Che. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It, no, it, it, I, Dulles would probably murder Che at the table, but that would be fun to watch too. Yeah. 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 Exploding cigars, the lot. Yes. <laughs> um, and what, what questions would you want to ask them? Well, I mean, that would be, there'd be a lot of them. I mean, you know, yeah. Kennan especially. So if you could only ask one question of each, what what would you choose? Well, since we're talking about 2019, each of the questions would be kind of looking back at how history has kind of unfolded since that time. I mean, Dulles, the great question would be, what do you think of the CIA today? Is this what you envisioned when you kind of created it in the 1940s and 50s? Kennan, kind of the idea behind that was, you know, containment as a theory is it what you meant it to be? And I know he talked about that during his life and he just died, you know, but getting a chance to kind of see the resurgence of Russia and the fact that Russia is not being contained today with Crimea and Ukraine and everything else. Uh, Kennan would probably have some very strong words to say about that. And then Che would be like, don't you wish you'd just stayed a doctor? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he wouldn't be on millions of T-shirts, though, if he'd stayed a doctor. And that would have made him probably pretty happy. I mean, the one the one way to get Che to roll in his grave is to buy a $70 sweatshirt. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah absolutely. Um, so, Vince, where, where can people find you online? Um, a couple places. I mean, the Spy Museum itself has a website, spymuseum.org. Um, I'm also on Twitter. My uh, handle is Intel Historian or at Intel Historian. 
Um, those are the two best places to look. Um, if you go on YouTube and type in my name, you can find a ton of the talks that I've done at the Spy Museum because we tend to put a lot of them online. Uh, and you can also see a lot of the press hits I did. So I'm definitely Googleable, um, and you can kind of get a little sneak peek at the book coming out in September also, which is a little bit more academic than this one. And, of course, there's your podcast as well. Well, exactly. And if you go to spymuseum.org, you can find the link to the podcast. You can find that on Spotify and Apple Apple Podcasts and anywhere else also. That's called SpyCast. Um, and that's every single week, every Tuesday, we put up a new podcast with someone I find interesting. A lot of times it's former directors of agencies or sometimes current directors of agencies or journalists. Everyone from someone like Ben McIntyre talking about his new books. Several of them we've talked about with Ben. Um, you know, whether they're former terrorists or they're former directors or God only knows, I like talking to people. So usually you get something I consider pretty entertaining and turns out that the audience does too, because we, we have a pretty good following of, of people who take this stuff seriously. Yeah, no, and I, I can vouch for that as well. They're really interesting, accessible podcasts that, that ask the uh, well, I guess what I like about it, they ask the sort of questions I'd want I'd want to ask of of, of these people. Um, and there's some real you know nuggets of information in there. So um, yeah, do do give that a go, listeners. Um, what is your next project? You have alluded to it um, before, but what what are you what are you working on after this one? Well, I, I'm done working on the next one. Thank God. Um, it's now just kind of final proofing. Uh, and this is a book coming out in September. Um, you're going to kind of see I pigeonholed myself a little bit. It's called The Nuclear Spies. Uh, this is about American intelligence against Hitler and Stalin in the 40s and 50s. So what the United States was doing to try to figure out what the Germans were developing as far as atomic research and atomic weapons, and then later what the Soviets were doing. Um, and so this is a little bit more academic than the one coming out in May. Uh, it's still readable. I wanted to make sure that it, it wasn't like we talked about, like so boring that you couldn't read it. Um, but it, it does kind of, it's a little more footnoted and I certainly spent a lot of time in the archives. Uh, this is not stuff that's available online. Uh, but I think it, it tells a side of early American. And then there's some British intelligence thrown in here as well about how we tried to create a brand new system of intelligence that didn't exist before. Right, atomic weapons didn't exist, so no one was doing intelligence on them. So how did we create this from scratch? Because, you know, today, intelligence about atomic weapons is one of the most important things that agencies do. I kind of look at the formation of this, you know, this discipline. Right. And that's from a U.S. point of view. So you're not looking at the Soviet spies trying to gain information on man. Yes, this is. Yeah. So this isn't the counterintelligence perspective. This is actually what we tried to do. Right to find out what everyone else was up to. I mean, you can't ignore that. That does get mentioned, but this is really what, you know, half the book is really American and British combined because the Americans and the British work very closely together in world war two to try to figure out what the Germans were up to. Um, the second part of the book fo focusing on the Soviets is much more American centered mm -hmm. um, because the British kind of go off and do their own thing. And we're, we're trying to figure out what the Soviets are doing. Um, but yes, this is from the American perspective. Right, right. Vince, I have taken probably enough of your time this evening. We could have um, certainly talked for hours. I think once we got onto the Cambridge Five and all all of all of that area, um, I really appreciate your your time. 
and uh, I've really enjoyed our chat. Of course, I'm happy to do it. Well, I hope you enjoyed our chat with Vince. There's more in the show notes with link to the book, the International Spy Museum, and their excellent podcast. The show notes are at coldwarconversations.com slash the word episode and the number 68. Please note if you buy the book via the links in the show notes, you are directly supporting the Cold War Conversations podcast. If you like what you're listening to, you can really help us by leaving reviews on iTunes, Stitcher, our Facebook page, or with your favourite podcast provider. This really helps raise our profile and get new guests on the show. If you can't wait for the next episode, do visit our Facebook discussion group where our guests and listeners just like you continue the Cold War conversation. We're also on Twitter, at Cold War Pod. Special thanks to our Politburo level patron, Tim Brown, whose generous monthly donation is significantly helping us to grow the show. Thank you very much for listening. It is really appreciated. Goodbye. Not enjoying the ads? Well, you can avoid them by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. By becoming a monthly or annual supporter, you'll enjoy ad-free listening, become a part of our community, receive the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster, and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information.